This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the Bible Book Club, Season 9, the book of 1 Samuel. If you just found us for the first time, know that we call this podcast the Bible Book Club because the Bible is the number one selling book of all time. It must be read and it is fascinating to discuss. We make it easy to do both. We read and discuss and you download and listen wherever you are while you drive, work out, fold the laundry, whatever you're doing, Bible Book Club is there with you. And so we're so excited to start a new book. Now, the Bible is a collection of small stories that together tell a much larger story. The larger story, we never want to forget this, is the entire history of our redemption with Jesus as the ultimate hero. Now, the book of 1 Samuel falls in the historical books of the Bible. The historical books follow the five books of the law. For a categorization of all the books of the Bible, we will put the Old Testament and New Testament book charts in the show notes. All right, who is the author of First and Second Samuel? Well, like last season, the book of Ruth, we just don't know for sure. First and Second Samuel were originally one book. We do know this. So the story in First Samuel continues in Second Samuel. So consider this overview kind of for both. Now, when did this story in First and Second Samuel take place? Somewhere between 1100 and 1010 BC. And I will put also in the show notes a Bible timeline chart so you can see kind of where it lays compared to all the other books of the Bible, which are not always in chronological order. All right. Well, who is Samuel? Samuel is so interesting because he was a priest, a prophet, and he was the very last judge of Israel. So if you were with us two seasons ago, you know that we we studied the book of Judges, which talked about the 12 judges, six greater, six smaller. This is the last judge. And Samuel provided spiritual leadership during the messy establishment of the monarchy in Israel, which you'll remember we kept ending with what were the, what was the phrase the Israel's did as they saw I mean everyone, everyone in did Israel as did saw. as they saw fit yes because Israel had, had no, no king. king so judges and even Ruth which was during the dark times that was it kind of preps us for this okay something's got to change it was just getting worse so now we finally have this really good judge and um he's going to be a spiritual leader and he's going to introduce the monarchy so what is first and second samuel about Here's the short summary of what both books are about. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel are the story of Israel's leadership transition from Judges to the first two kings, Saul, the first one, who failed due to pride and disobedience, and David, a man after God's heart. So these two books will have three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. All right, here's a recap of where we've been through all our seasons and where we are now. So you can understand the framework of this story. Here's how first and second Samuel fit into history and into the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are the books of the law. I mentioned this Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy see seasons one through five of Bible book club. After the books of the law, there are 12 history books. Starting with season six of Bible book club, we discuss the book of Joshua, where the Israelites moved into the promised land. Then in season seven, the book of Judges, the Israelites fell. They moved in, but they made a lot of mistakes. These are called the darkest days of Israel's history. And over and over again, we heard that phrase. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. 
Then in season eight, The Book of Ruth, we had a little bit of a reprieve from the dark days, even though Ruth took place during the dark days, because it was a sweet restoration story. So light in the darkness. Think of Ruth as light in the darkness. Now in Samuel, in 1 Samuel season 9 and 2 Samuel season 10, we will continue in the history books with a focus on the work of one man, Samuel, and like I mentioned, those two kings he anointed, Saul and David. Now, when we open, Israel has a problem. From the very beginning, the idea that, and when I say the beginning, I mean back in Genesis, the idea that Yahweh was king was woven into the identity of Israel. Israel was a theocracy. God as king was the very foundation of their theology. But as time went on and Moses and Joshua died, those two great leaders, the leadership fell apart. The judges grew successively worse. They forgot that God was king. They broke their covenant with God and they dissipated his laws. Everyone did as they saw fit because Israel had no king. Now, Israel did not want a theocracy. They wanted a monarchy just like every other country around them. It was like, you got to have that it person, you know? So here's God's solution. It was to provide a human king chosen by God and anointed to lead his people. The word for anointed one is Messiah. So God is kind of setting up this expectation now of they're going to go through these kings, these messiahs, these anointed ones. They're not going to do the job. They're not going to get it done. And we know God's going to provide the ultimate messiah. The theme of a messiah that is ideal will develop slowly, as will other themes that tie the monarchy the temple or central place of worship and the priesthood all together. So all those things we learned way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy are still going to play a part. They're just going to morph. Jesus is all three in one. He is the ideal king, the great high priest. And because he died for us, the temple's no longer needed for sacrifice. So with Jesus as our intermediary, we can worship him anywhere. So he kind of replaces the old covenant. He is the new covenant. All right, let's start with our story. First Samuel 1, Hannah's precious gift from God for God. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerhom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuppah, the Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. All right, so we start with the story of Hannah and Elkanah. Now, Elkanah was from the country of Ephraim. Ephraim, you will remember, was one of Joseph's sons. Now, Joseph was one of the two princely sons of Jacob. The other was Judah, from whom the Messiah would come. But Joseph clearly gets second billing to Judah throughout the Old Testament. First, he got a double portion of the promised land because both of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, become tribes. Then when Israel divides later, even from where we are now, Judah will control the southern kingdom and Ephraim will control the northern kingdom. Now, not to complicate things, but it is possible that Elkanah was not totally from the tribe of Ephraim, but a Levite living in Ephraim. 
This would explain how his son Samuel became a priest as priests had to be from the tribe of Levi. So it is possible that his mother was a Levite or it's possible that Samuel was adopted into the Levite tribe. We're just not sure. Somehow they're going to get around that. Now, Elkanah had two wives, which is always a problem. One wife is plenty. (laughs) Polygamy was never part of God's plan. And every case of it in the Bible is rife with strife. This situation was no different. Hannah is named first, suggesting that she was the first wife. It is very likely that Elkanah took a second wife because of Hannah's infertility, just like Abraham way back in Genesis. Now, Hannah means favored, and she was definitely her husband's favorite. The other wife was named Peninnah, which means fruitful, and she was very fruitful. Peninnah had the children, Hannah had the love. But for Hannah, Elkanah's love was not enough because barrenness was considered a failure by the Israelites. God had promised the Israelites that a savior would come from the offspring of Abraham in Genesis 22. And they were to um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. So every child born was considered to to possibly be the one that was promised. If you could not have children, it looked like you were excluded from God's plan and it opened you up to being suspected of sin or cursed. Barren women were often mistreated, even within their families. All right, here is scene one. Three is the loneliest number. First Samuel one, three. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? All right. What we knew about Elkanah makes us love him. He has this calm, diligent commitment to God. In obedience to God's law, he made the trip to worship at Silo and sacrifice there every single year. Now, Shiloh was where the tabernacle was and where all the Israelites were to sacrifice and worship by law and all those laws we covered in past seasons. It's not yet in Jerusalem. So remember when they erect the temple, that will be the final place. That's coming in after David. Second, what I love about Elkanah is that he has a tender heart. During the annual sacrifice of the fellowship offering, when it was time for Elkanah to serve portions of the sacrifice to his family, I want you to imagine the scene that this would have created. There were families spread out all over the place. I I don't know if it was picnic style. I imagine it was. They didn't have picnic tables. So I'm kind of thinking they had blankets or something. It was a big old bash. It's just a huge party all the time for the Israelites. Well, it was supposed to be the whole country was supposed to come back. So they're all there for the, think of like a barbecue. (laughs) They did backyard barbecue. The biggest one you've ever seen. They did singe those sacrifices. It must have been very, yeah, smoky. Um, Now we discussed feasts and festivals at length in Leviticus season three. So for some, 
summary of those feasts and festivals. See our charts on feasts in the show notes. I'll put it in there. But no, this is the fellowship one. So everybody got to take a share in it. It wasn't just for the priests or, or for God. So also know this. The treat was meat. It was a rarity back then. So again, think of that big barbecue. You haven't had barbecue all winter and they're having a big picnic and they get to have meat and the kids are excited and they probably had games and hoopla and who knows. I know they had beer and wine because you'll see Eli thinks that Hannah's drunk for some reason. So Penina was on one side of what we're going to say they had a picnic table here with all her sons and daughters, plurals of each, maybe like six or seven kids, like little little ducks lined up beside her all ages, like just stair-stepped down. People, neighbors, relatives would have been passing by, nodding their obvious approval at her large brood. Surely it was a blessing from God that she had so many children. Then across from Penina, in stark contrast, for all of Israel to see for a whole nother year was Hannah. Her barrenness on display in the empty seats beside her. For it said God had closed her womb. But why? She was so vulnerable. Elkanah would have come out at this time after his sacrifice, now all cooked, with the fellowship offering and served the majority of it. It would have been heaped because remember she has sons and daughters. He would have served it to Peninnah and to each of her children. Then he would have turned to Hannah, a party of one. And seeing the sorrow in her eyes, his heart would break. He would do the only thing he could at the moment to show her how much he loved her. He gave her a double portion. The irony is that she was so sad she couldn't eat anything at all, let alone a double portion. But I know it would have been like my husband. He always likes to fix it. You know, he doesn't want me to be sad. Now, the reference that Elkanah makes to 10 sons at this point, aren't I worth more than 10 sons to you, is a throwback to the other fierce polygamous relationship and rivalry of Rachel and Leah. Jacob loved Rachel, but not Leah. 10 sons were born to Jacob from other wives while Rachel watched in bitterness. And then on the other side, poor Leah had to watch Jacob love Rachel more her entire marriage. And then when Rachel finally did have a son, poor Leah had to watch that son become the favorite, even though she had all these others, including Judah, who will be the the um, line of Christ. Ugh, polygamy. It's just too complicated. This is why we don't do it. Elkanah's attention and attempts to make Hannah happy backfire. So the double portion meant nothing to her. It only served to fuel Peninnah's jealousy and with it, her persecution of Hannah, which in turn added to Hannah's suffering. The Hebrew word that describes Peninnah as a rival, we translate it as rival, suggests a person who is a troubler implying that Peninnah did it on purpose to stir up dissension. This is Leah and Rachel's situation all over again. Marriage in the Bible was and is meant for two and three created competition, persecution, and in Hannah's case, loneliness. She couldn't cry out to to Elkanah. He already felt guilty. She couldn't show her sorrow to Peninnah. That would just feed it more. So this happened year after year. Peninnah persecuted Elkanah pitied, and what did Hannah do? Well, finally, in scene two, Hannah prays. 
Have you ever been so unhappy that you felt trapped like Hannah? Or perhaps you felt like your grief was filling and consuming you so completely that you couldn't breathe. Have you ever wanted to run in panic, crumble in exhaustion, or let it all out in anger and frustration? Hannah is at that point. She cannot get away from Penina. She feels guilty that Elkanah is not enough to bring her joy, but he just isn't, and his pity makes it worse for her. She cannot contain or control her feelings anymore, and she has nowhere to turn but to God. First Samuel 1, 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor would ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Eli makes a mistake. It's not his first and it won't be his last. He thought Hannah was drunk. Um, You got to wonder, had he never seen someone praying in distress before? We will soon find out that he doesn't really see his sons either. Eli is spiritually blind despite his position as high priest. It was another sign of these dark times. Now, Hannah did all the right things in the eyes of God. First, Hannah turned to God in her grief. She is the only woman in the Bible we know of to actually go up to the Lord's house. And she is the only woman ever mentioned as having made and kept a vow. She poured out her anguish to the only one who could do something about it. And then she left it with him and her face was no longer downcast. Now, if you're not a crier and you cannot relate to Hannah's way of expressing pain from persecution, perhaps you can identify more with Ruth or Deborah. Hannah internalized persecution. Ruth plotted through persecution and Deborah attacked persecution. All three, in very different ways, were faithful to God despite persecution and looked to Him for guidance. That is the key. And those, Ruth and Deborah, we did in past seasons, so check those out. Because of these three women's constant faith in God, they triumphed over their persecution. We could do a great character study on persecution, but you can hear more about those. Um, Ruth was season eight and Deborah in season seven, episode four. Now, the other thing Hannah did right in the eyes of God is Hannah prayed out of a commitment to God, not pride. Remember I said Rachel and Leah kind of, Rachel had that bitterness. It was really more about Rachel being embarrassed that she was barren and not about serving God. Hannah was different. She prayed out of commitment to God, and she promised that if God gave her a child, the child would serve God as a Nazarite. 
Now, a Nazarite was a person who took a vow of consecration and dedication to God. The vow was usually voluntary and temporary, usually taken for a specific period of time. And the fact that she said, no, um, what, his hair wouldn't be cut, something like that, implies that this was a Nazarite vow. Samuel's Nazarite vow was not temporary. His vow was assigned from birth for his entire life by his mother, Hannah. She committed it. He is just one of three Nazarites in the Bible from birth chosen by God. Of the other two, one was Samson from the book of Judges. You can listen to Bible Book Club season seven, episode nine um, in that episode, which gives more detail on Nazarites. Now, the other lifetime Nazarite is from the New Testament, John the Baptist, whose story can be found found in Luke 1, and we'll get there one day. (laughs) Many years. I don't know how many years from now. Hannah's prayer was not about her pride, which was clearly at the center of Rachel and Leah's battle to reproduce. Hannah's sorrow stemmed from her inability to participate in the promise of God's future. Her actions revealed her true heart for the Lord, for she gave Samuel back to God so that he may spend his life participating in the future of God's people. Because of Hannah's pure heart, so similar to Ruth's, God chose her. God chose to accomplish his work by using a socially powerless woman of profound faith to be an instrument for him. God sees, God hears, and God uses those who are. In Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hannah was poor in spirit. Hannah mourned for her situation. She took it to the Lord. She was pure in heart. She was persecuted and she was insulted. But great is Hannah's reward in heaven. For her gift to God became a priest, a prophet, and the very last judge. And God made sure that it was documented for all to read that his story began with her and her story began with her faith in God. Hannah is a sweet inspiration to us that trust in the Lord can bring rewards that surpass the pain we may experience in life. All right, scene three. Hannah's prayer is answered. 1 Samuel 1, 19. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. All right, let's talk about Hannah again. Hannah asked God. We don't know if Hannah would have been God's choice to deliver Samuel had she never asked. The point is that she did ask. It all seems so simple in this story, but the reality is that it is not. We don't always receive what we ask for, and it is often impossible to understand God's purpose when he does not answer as we desire. And many times, we don't even ask. I don't. (laughs) Instead, I rely on myself and try to accomplish what I want on my own way, or worse, I use my energy 
that I should in pouring out to God like Hannah did to vent to others or wallow in frustration and anger rather than pray. Because Hannah asked, the Lord remembered Hannah. This does not mean that he had forgotten her. When the word remembered is used referring to God, it implies that a major new activity of God is about to happen. In this case, Hannah gives birth to a child who will grow to serve the Lord mightily. Now, the name Samuel means his name is God. And there is a lot in the commentaries about this whole ask thing, like the way she comes back and says to Eli, um, this is the son that I told you I would, if the Lord gave me, I would have, it's like ask, ask, ask. She wove it into the whole sentence. So that's why his name is so important because it's his name is God. But the Hebrew word for ask for is seah, which sounds like Samuel. (laughs) And it is thought that that is why she chose the name because Samuel is the child she asked God for. The word Seal is also very close to another important name in our story. The name is Saul and Saul is the king the people have asked for. So, you know, you got to love these old prophet authors. They like to weave in all these little hints that we don't get in our translation. All right. Scene four, Hannah is faithful. First Samuel 1, verse 21. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Oh, gosh, I cannot imagine this scene. First, props to Elkanah for not telling her she's crazy. Like, look, babe, you've been crying for a child for a decade, and now you're going to give him up and cry for another decade? I'm not having it. You know, my, my husband said that's the worst idea I've ever heard of. But no, not Elkanah. He respects Hannah's love and commitment to the Lord, and and he wanted her to do what was right in her eyes. But what about Hannah? Think about her. It is thought that Samuel is only about three years old at this time. He is a baby, still very dependent on his mother. So surely Hannah must have wept even more this time than last time she was in Shiloh and the priest Eli thought she was drunk. I cannot imagine the scene of her, you know, pulling the baby clinging to her neck and her pulling him away. And I don't know who she handed him to. You know, I mean, all we know from the story going on is Samuel, of course, is the high priest and he lives with his two sons. But I'm sure there's wives around. But why would they be loving to this child that's not theirs? I don't know. What about Samuel? He was too young to understand why his mother was placing him in a stranger's arms and leaving him. Did he feel abandoned? 
how hard did he cry? And for how many days? Because it's his dad he's going to miss too. Like I picture Elkanah as very loving. And I'm sure there was a big, huge party when this baby was born. And I'm sure he was spoiled um, and probably Elkanah's favorite, you know, who comforted and took care of this child. Well, Hannah had a faith that defied her breaking heart. She gave her son, her only son, the one she had prayed for up. She gave him up to God. And God raised that child up in a mighty way to save Israel. God would do the same one day with his own son. And we can only imagine the tenderness that God felt for Hannah's sacrifice. It was a shadow of the one God would make himself with his own son. Now, Hannah may have appeared pitiful to her community, but in fact, she was incredibly powerful. Robert Bergen, in his commentary about Hannah, said this, Hannah teaches that true power is to be found not in one's position in society, but in one's posture before God. The spiritual powerhouse in this narrative was a socially impotent woman from a rural region. Hannah was the barren, despised, and demeaned servant of God. And through her humble position, in a posture of humility, she contributed more to Israel's future than the high priest Eli, who was in the privileged position of highest power. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club! New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.